Good morning. Ohayou gozaimasu. Welcome to uh, Calvary Chapel Iwakuni. Great to be here with you guys. Uh, This morning we're going to continue our march through the Gospel of Luke. And so will you all please open up your Bibles and head to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. Uh, This morning the plan is to finish off chapter 11 by looking at a portion of Scripture where Jesus is invited to share in a meal with a group of people that we would least expect. Jesus is going to be invited to the house of a Pharisee to share in a meal along with some acquaintances of the Pharisee. It is something that we would not uh, anticipate or expect to see knowing the disdain the Pharisees have towards Jesus. And yet, Jesus welcomes the invitation and will end up going into the house. And along with this unexpected invitation to fellowship, there are going to come some unexpected words Jesus would have for his host and his company. The title of our message this morning is going to be Misery Loves Company. Misery Loves Company. We're going to pick up where we last left off in chapter 11. At verse 37, and we're going to make our way all the way down to the completion of the chapter in verse 54. Everyone there? Luke chapter 11? Yeah? You guys know the drill. I'd like to ask you to rise to your feet in honor of the Lord and His Word. I'm going to read our text in its entirety from my Bible. I want to encourage you, do your best to follow along in your own. Luke writes the following in chapter 11, verse 37. And as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and sat down to eat. When the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Then the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But rather give alms of such things as you have, then indeed all things are clean to you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like graves which are not seen and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. Then one of the lawyers answered and said to him, Teacher, by saying these things, you reproach us also. And he said, Woe to you also, lawyers, for you will load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, the wisdom of God is also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in, you hindered. And as he said these things to them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, the opportunity to stand here before you in your presence, to open up your word and allow your word to speak to us. And Lord, I do hope and pray that as we are standing here with open Bibles, Lord, that in like manner, our hearts would be open. Lord, our ears would be open. Our eyes would be open. Lord, that we would receive all that your spirit desires to show us and to teach us and to mold and shape in us. And so, Lord, we do submit ourselves to you. We yield ourselves to your word, and we ask for your spirit's leading and guiding and blessing. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. The 
old English idiom, uh, misery loves company, the exact phrase can actually be traced back to the 19th century, but a form of the saying can actually be traced back some 2,500 years to the days of the ancient Greeks. Uh, Sophocles, the ancient Greek playwright, is actually credited with, with a form of this phrase in some of his famous works of tragedy dating back to the 5th century B.C., Now, the exact meaning of this phrase can take on a couple different shades of a similar truth, and so I want to explain them to you. Uh, One way to look at it is in somewhat of a comforting way. People who are struggling or going through tough times and difficulties, they like to surround themselves with other fellow sufferers because it makes the pain easier to bear. Uh, From this perspective, the phrase could be used in support of coming alongside someone who's hurting and helping them cope with something that you too uh, have experienced or or are experiencing as well. But I don't think this is the most common way that we use this phrase. Another way to look at at it takes on a more negative feel. Uh, The idea could be that uh, unhappy, miserable people find solace in the fact that Other people are experiencing the same sort of difficulties and unhappiness as them. And knowing that others are perhaps suffering worse than they are brings a sense of satisfaction to their own situation. Then there is a third way to look at this that takes upon itself a very nefarious and sinful approach. When we say misery loves company, it can mean that miserable people actually find joy and pleasure in making other people miserable and unhappy. Okay? Unhappy people do and say things to those who are otherwise happy that are doing well with the intent of dragging them down and making them feel worse than them. In our text this morning, we're going to see Jesus interacting with some miserable people. Okay? People who were caught up in legalism and ritualism that wanted nothing more than to make people fall into their same sense of legalism and ritualism. And we know that they were miserable people because Jesus is going to share multiple woes with them. Okay, The term woe, as Jesus uses six times in our text this morning, it carries with it the idea of denouncing misery and actually pitying it. Jesus shares multiple woes with these people who are in misery and are wanting to bring others into their misery. And so he denounces it as evil, but at the same time there is a sense of of pity towards them. Even though these people had it out for Jesus and they were trying everything they could to come against him, Jesus actually pities them and their situation. Despite their harsh feelings and actions towards him, Jesus would love to see them actually turn from their sinful ways and receive the grace and forgiveness that he offers. He pities them knowing how lost they are and how bad their situation has become. Well, let's dive into our text, and we're going to see what the Lord would have for us today. Read with me again the opening of our text in verses 37 and 38. Luke continues, and he says, And as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and sat down to eat. When the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. So for context's sake, just to kind of catch us up, remind us where we're at, Jesus has just finished addressing the naysayers and doubters who claim that Jesus was able to cast out demons by the power of Satan and those who tested him by demanding he show them a sign from heaven. We've been looking at that portion the last couple of weeks. Now, we aren't told specifically who those people were in Luke's gospel that challenged him. Matthew records a very similar incident involving both Pharisees and scribes that took place in the region of Galilee in Matthew chapter 12. But here in Luke, Jesus is believed to be in the region of Judea. And it's about a year after the incident that's recorded in Matthew's account. Now, in Matthew's account, it was the Pharisees that accused him of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. And it was both the Pharisees and the scribes who demanded from Jesus a sign from heaven. But though we can't be certain of who the group is here, because Luke is silent on the matter, it isn't too hard to believe that those who spoke up were either Pharisees and scribes, again, okay, or that 
they were people sent by and influenced by these religious leaders who had it in for Jesus. And the fact that we know these religious leaders had it in for Jesus makes this invitation to break bread all the more suspicious. But Jesus accepts the invitation and he goes to the house of a certain Pharisee to dine with him. Though not mentioned off the bat, we can tell from the rest of the account that this was not a private fellowship between the Pharisee and Jesus, for the Pharisee also had invited other Pharisees and scribes, lawyers, to join with Jesus at this meal. This meal was not a big fancy dinner or feast, more than likely a small breakfast or lunch of some sorts. We know this to be true based upon the Greek wording that's used here. Uh, The Greek word that's translated dine, it speaks of a meal that takes place prior to the principal meal of the day, which would be supper. Even the Greek word that's translated as dinner at the end of verse 38 is actually defined as a meal taken at no particular time. It could correlate with breakfast or lunch. And so uh, it is distinctly different from the Greek word used for supper. Uh, And so we get the sense, the idea that this was not like, hey, I want to have you over for this great, wonderful meal. It's more, hey, I just want to get you over to this place and we're going to gang up on you. I've got all my friends here and we're just going to bring some, you know, have some words with you. Well, as Jesus entered and sat down to eat, the Pharisee marveled that Jesus did not first wash before sitting down. Now, I need to make sure that you all understand what's meant here by the term wash, okay? This is not referring to hygiene, okay? This is not a reference to hygiene. They didn't marvel at Jesus' apparent lack of hygiene for not washing his hands before coming to sit down and, and partake of a meal, okay? The Greek word used here for wash is baptizo. It's where we get our English word baptize from. Uh, And this term was used to speak of a washing that was done for religious purposes, okay? This was reference reference to a ceremonial cleansing, okay? The Pharisees, they held to a certain tradition that demanded one ceremonially wash their hands prior to eating. Mark chapter 7, verse 3 tells us this. It says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the traditions of the elders. Now, typically the washing would consist of taking water. You would pour it over your hands so that you can uh, wash your hands, rubbing them together. You take one pouring over. You wash your hands. You got to be careful not to let it drip down to your elbows. Okay, if it came in towards your body, then the impurities that you're washing off would defile your body, and so that was a big no-no. So it's very meticulous. You would one pouring of water. You rub your hands together. Then there would be a second pouring of water, which would be the rinse, and uh, you would be done basically. And so, very meticulous, special way of uh, washing. Okay. Now, the interesting thing about this tradition is that it is actually rooted in what was prescribed for the priests. The priests who performed the temple sacrifices were required to wash their hands and their feet, actually, before entering into the tabernacle of meeting or before coming before the altar to minister to the Lord. The priests were required to partake of the offerings that were allotted to them in a holy place, okay, within the tabernacle of meeting, and then later on within the temple. And so this is where this ritual comes from. It was a very serious offense not to wash for a priest. In fact, the Bible tells us in Exodus chapter 30, and commands uh, that they shall wash lest they die, okay? This was a very big deal. And while this was a very serious offense for a priest not to ceremonially wash before partaking of a meal in a holy place, this wasn't something that was given to the rest of the Jewish community. You do not read of this in any of the rest of the Old Testament, a prescription for the normal person to wash ceremonially their hands. What happened is the Pharisees who prided themselves on following not just the law, 
but also the traditions of the elders, the teachings of the rabbis. They took what the Lord gave to a very specific group of people in a very specific situation and applied it to everyone in every situation. Okay, instead of it being just for the priests when they are eating at the tabernacle or in the temple, it was expected of all the people every time they sat down to any sort of meal that involved bread. Okay, if you were going to serve bread, then you had to go through this ceremonial hand washing. This was not part of the law, but man's traditions. The elders and rabbis had taken something that God gave for the priests serving in the holy place and applied it to everyone in every place. And when we take something that God gave to someone specifically and we start to apply it to everyone, we run the danger of becoming just like these Pharisees. Be careful, church family, that you do not fall into this trap. You know, there may be times or seasons or situations where the Lord speaks to you about a certain thing that you should do or a certain thing that you perhaps shouldn't do. Be careful that you don't take what God gave you and start expecting everyone else to be doing the same thing. Okay? That can be our tendency. That can be our temptation. It is often to take what God speaks to us specifically and to apply it to not only our own lives, but to the lives of everyone else around us. Okay? And now I want to make sure you understand the difference. I'm not talking about God's revelation, okay? God's revealed word. Okay? When it says, do not commit murder and do not commit adultery, that applies to all of us. Okay? But I'm talking about when you're praying and you're in a situation, you're like, I'm really not sure, and you feel like God just speaks clearly to you. This is what I need to do. This is what I shouldn't do. Okay? Very different, distinct situation. And we begin to expect people to live and act a certain way based upon something specifically God gave us. Listen up, you guys. That is the basis for legalism. Okay? And getting caught up in legalism will lead you to being just like these Pharisees. Miserable, unhappy people. Okay? People that are constantly looking down upon others for the way they live their life because they don't live the way God has led them to live. Don't let yourself fall into this temptation, you guys. Listen for God's word. Okay? Allow him to speak to you and be obedient to what he gives you. But trust that the Lord is able to speak to and lead others just as he has led you. And give the Lord the benefit of the doubt okay? that he may just know what you need and that it's different from what someone else needs. We will all stand before the Lord and we will give an account for whether we were faithful with all that the Lord gave to us individually. Okay, let's not be overly concerned and judgmental towards our brothers and sisters in the Lord who may not do things the same way that we do. Let's trust that God's more than able to lead his own children, to direct them in the things that they should or should not be doing, and let's keep our eyes upon the Lord instead of looking down upon others. Well, Let's continue on. We're going to see how Jesus responds to this Pharisee that marveled at Jesus' lack of ceremonial washing. Read with me verses 39 through 41. It says, Then the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Foolish ones! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But rather give alms of such things as you have, then indeed all things are clean to you. Jesus, uh, either responding to the look of shock and astonishment on the face of the Pharisee, or simply knowing the thoughts and the intents of his heart, responds with a rebuke towards the Pharisee and his Pharisee friends. Part of the tradition of the elders that the Pharisees followed not only involved elaborate and excessive ceremonial washing of their hands, it also involved cups, pitchers, uh, copper vessels, and even couches, these long chairs that were used for reclining at during meals, according to Mark chapter 7. The Pharisees would spend so much time and energy on washing the outside of the cups and dishes they used, but did not bother to cleanse their own inward parts that were full of greed and wickedness. Now, the wording here is very strong, you guys. It's quite accusatory. The word greed, it speaks of plundering and taking things by force. 
the word wickedness. It carries the sense of perverting virtue and moral principles from their purposes to evil ends. In essence, what these Pharisees did was violently rob people, taking from them what was good and turning it into something that was evil. Because they did this, the people started to hate doing things that were actually good and beneficial for them. They turned good things like following God's word into something that was evil. The people didn't want anything to do with following God's word because the Pharisees had made it such a painful and burdensome thing to do. Jesus calls them out as fools because they failed to consider that the one who made the outside is the same who made the inside. The Lord sees and knows what is happening on the inside just as easily as he sees what is happening on the outside. Nothing is hidden from his eyes. Yet these Pharisees acted like as long as the outside looked good, well, it didn't matter what was going on on the inside. And Jesus' recourse to them in verse 41, okay, I need to explain, is not trying to suggest that if they simply give money to the poor, that this would all be cleaned up uh, and their inner wickedness would just go away. Okay? That's not what's meant here. Giving alms was not just speaking of giving money to the poor. The root word for alms speaks of mercifulness and compassion. Giving alms meant literally giving mercy and compassion to those who were in need of it. Okay? We just associate alms as something that we would give to someone uh, financially to the poor, someone who's in need. We give money to the poor. That's giving alms. Actually, giving alms means giving mercy, giving compassion to those who desperately need it. The same Greek words found in the Septuagint in the book of Proverbs where it reads, He who follows righteousness and mercy finds life, righteousness, and honor. The word mercy is the same word that's here translated as alms. So if these Pharisees would give alms, that is, if they would be merciful and compassionate toward those who need it, They would let go of their greed and wickedness that was inside of them and replace it with mercy and compassion. And they would end up finding life, finding righteousness, and finding honor. These were the things that they seemed to be seeking after in the first place. They wanted to find life. They wanted to find righteousness. They wanted honor, but they went about it in all the wrong ways. Again, such a great word and a great warning for us to heed. Okay, let's, let's be careful not to follow the example of the Pharisees where we focus so much attention on the outside and the appearances that we miss out on the real work that God wants to do on the inside. If we will allow God to work on the inside, then we won't have to focus so much energy on putting up a front and trying to make the outside look so good because the natural work God does on the inside, it will reveal itself on the outside. You won't have to put up a front. You won't have to make the outside look good, okay, if God is genuinely working on the inside. Jesus is going to continue his rebuke towards the Pharisees with a series of woes, three in fact, that we will take a look at individually, that we may understand what Jesus was saying, and that we may avoid ourselves playing the part of the Pharisee in our own walk with the Lord. So take a look at the first woe with me in verse 42. He says, But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. The first woe involved the Pharisees' meticulous act of tithing. The Pharisees were so exacting when it came to the tithe that they would actually tithe from their own herbs, from their own private garden. Okay? Herbs, uh, if you're not familiar, I, did, I didn't know this, I had to look it up. Okay? Herbs will actually produce small flowers that you can harvest very small seeds from. Most people will cut away the flowers because the more flowers an herb produces, the less potent the flavor of the herb will end up being. And so uh, it's putting too much energy into building the flowers and not developing the strength of the flavor in the herb, and so they'll cut them up. But you want to save a couple of them so that you might gather the seeds for the next season. Okay? 
the Pharisees would actually count out the seeds of their herb garden and tithe off of them. Can you imagine these little tiny, you know, plants? And you carry, you know, put a little bag on there just to carry the seed. You're like, okay, one seed for the Lord, nine seeds for me, right? And you would kind of go through and sit there and and separate them out, okay? And yet, while they were so meticulous when it came to the tithe, they left other things that were significantly more important undone. They tithed from the herbs of their garden, but they did not bother to engage in justice and the love of God. Justice, it speaks of doing what is right, treating others in a fair and a reasonable manner. It focuses upon our relationship with others. Okay, the love of God obviously focuses upon our relationship with the Lord. You know, it reminds me of what Jesus said in response to the question about what the greatest commandment was. You guys know what Jesus said, right? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The greatest commandment involves loving God and loving others, treating others the way you want to be treated, fairly and with justice. You see, the problem that Jesus is focusing in on here was the Pharisees' tendency to not only major on the minors, okay, that was a problem, okay, but to do so while completely neglecting the majors, okay? Yes, they tithed, okay, they tithed the very seeds of their herb garden, but they failed to love God. They failed to love others. Jesus tells them that they should have tithed, okay? He didn't tell them not to do so, but exhorts them to make sure they don't leave the other more important things undone. Listen, tithing's great, okay? Giving to the Lord is something I believe that we should all practice. But we need to make sure that we are also doing the major things. You see, in light of loving God and loving others, whether or not you tithe off of every single little thing that you have really isn't all that important, okay? God's not cared about, God doesn't care about your herbs, okay? And, and your, you know, tithing of the seeds uh, in your private little garden if you're not loving him, if you're not loving others, okay? God wants us, God wants our hearts far more than he wants our tithes and our offerings and you know, sacrifices. Shared these verses on Wednesday night. Proverbs 21.3 states, To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Psalm 51 affirms, For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. In Hosea we, were, we hear straight from the Lord when he declared through Hosea, I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Micah chapter 6 verses 6 through 8 testifies, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be blessed with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? You see, God wants our hearts. He wants us to be merciful and compassionate. He wants us to know Him, okay? And He wants us to walk with Him Far more than he wants our burnt offerings, our sacrifice, our gifts, our tithes, okay? God wants us. May we be reminded to not focus so much attention on the minor things, but to focus upon the major things that God is looking for. And listen, church family, as we focus upon the majors, the minors, they're going to take care of themselves, okay? Let's continue. Take a look at verse 43. It says, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Jesus shares another woe with the Pharisees. Remember, these woes were interjections of grief and denunciation. He was denouncing their evil practices, while at the same time feeling pity and grief towards them, wanting them to turn from their ways. Here he states how the Pharisees love the best seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces. Within the synagogues would often be built a special seating 
for the religious leaders up in front, uh, right next to the table where the scrolls would be opened up, they would be unrolled, and they would be read from. These were places of prominence. And the Pharisees loved to be put up in front of others as someone special. They loved to be greeted in the marketplaces and recognized for their position. You see, they wanted to be revered. They wanted to be respected and honored by men. They wanted to be seen as people that were significant, special. The problem with the Pharisees was that they were more concerned with the praise of man than they were with the praise of God. They cared more about what the people thought of them than they did about what God thought about them. The Pharisees loved the perks that came with their position as religious leaders, but they forgot their basic responsibility of being religious leaders and helping people grow closer to the Lord. They loved the praise of the people, but they didn't do anything to actually serve the people, to help people. You know, the crazy thing is that we can consider is that they would go through such elaborate efforts to seek the praise and approval of people they often showed contempt towards. People they looked down upon and reviewed as lesser or lower than themselves, and it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever that they would go through all of these efforts to be applauded or, you know, lauded by people they don't even care about. May we be a people that are more concerned with the Lord and his thoughts towards us than we are with the people and their thoughts. May we live to serve and honor the Lord and not ourselves and not man. Let's take a look at Jesus' third and final woe towards the Pharisees. And we're going to note how he adds in an additional group here in this final woe. In verse 43, it said, or 44, excuse me. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like graves which are not seen, and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. Okay? In this final woe directed towards the Pharisees, Jesus also lumps in the scribes as well, saying how they are both hypocrites. The word hypocrite, it speaks of one who acts pretentiously, who is a counterfeit, a man who assumes and speaks or acts under a feigned character. It was actually a term used in the theater to depict actors as ones who wore a mask, someone who pretended to be something or someone they were not. Jesus referred to them as hypocrites because they were like graves which are not seen, and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. You see, the Jewish people were very mindful of carefully marking grave sites because of what was written in the law about coming into contact with a grave. You see, in the book of Numbers, we're told how coming into contact with anything that was dead, whether it be one slain by a sword or a man who died or the bones of a man or a grave, that it would defile you and you would be ceremonially unclean for seven days, unable to visit the temple and go in and uh, be part of the fellowship and the worship service there. Uh, And so the implication Jesus is giving here is that these Pharisees and scribes, they go around acting like they are holy, but in reality, they are defiled. Okay, And not only are they themselves defiled, but on top of that, they defile everyone that they come into contact with. Instead of leading others into holiness and godliness, they end up bringing defilement and desecration to all who are influenced by them. The application for us is quite simple. We need to make sure that we are not playing the part of the hypocrite. It is a sad testament that there are so many outside the church today who want little or nothing at all to do with the church and and with the Lord, because from their perspective, the church is filled with nothing but a bunch of hypocrites. And the truth is, there are many who claim to be one thing with their words, but in their actions say something completely different. You guys, we need to make sure that our words and our actions are in agreement. That we not only say we are Christians, but we live and walk and love as Christ did. Now, 
These words of Jesus here in verse 44, they struck a nerve with some who were gathered there. Read verse 45 with me. It says, Then one of the lawyers answered and said to him, Teacher, by saying these things, you reproach us also. Understand the situation here. Accusations were being brought forth. Individual personal character was being questioned. And people's reputations were being challenged. And so in true form here, the lawyers from the group, they speak up. Okay, no offense, Perry. We love you. Okay. Hey, that's defamation of character. You know, you can't say that, okay? That you're, you know, speaking negatively and we're not going to stand for that. The lawyers, they were brought into this exchange because Jesus had included the scribes in his final woe against the Pharisees. And the scribes that day were the experts in the law. Not necessarily civil law or criminal law like we think of today, but the Mosaic law. They were seen as the experts of what the law of Moses had to say, the first five books of the Bible, and how, what it had to teach. These lawyers didn't like Jesus lumping them together with the Pharisees. But as we'll see, they should have just remained silent. For now, Jesus turns his focus upon them, and he shares with them a series of three woes that were for them alone. Let's take a look at the first one in verse 46. And he said, what are you also, lawyers? For you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Jesus says, uh, what are you too? Basically, when they piped up. Why? Because they load men with burdens hard to bear, and yet they themselves don't bother to even touch the same burdens with one of their fingers. The lawyers actually played a very special part in laying the foundation for what would become the ways of the Pharisees. You see, it was the lawyer's vast interpretation and commentary upon the law that led the Pharisees into their extreme positions and to the keeping of the traditions of the elders and the rabbis. These lawyers would basically, they recorded all their commentary and this is what this means, this is what these means. And from that, the traditions uh, were birthed. And the Pharisees were the ones that clung to these traditions. The entire oppressive religious system was due in large part to the lawyer's interpretation and opinion upon God's word. And so Jesus draw, excuse me, Jesus draws his attention towards them and their heavy burdens. The lawyers took the law and they made it into heavy burdens that were near impossible to bear. For instance, they took the commandment regarding the Sabbath and how the people were to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And they added to it all sorts of extra commandments. Okay, Exodus 20 verse 8 is where we read of that uh, commandment. They took a day of rest and remembrance and they turned it into a day of heavy burdens and rituals and work. Okay? There's no way to get around it. The law prescribed that no work should be done on the Sabbath. It was to be a day of rest. But the lawyers come along okay, and they had to define what constituted work. Okay? We're not allowed to do any work. Well, what's work? Well, they took this one simple command to rest and cease from work, and they turned it into 39 different categories of what constituted work. And amongst those 39 categories were hundreds of subcategories, okay? okay? Oh, you can't work. That means you can't do this, and you can't do this, and you can't do this, and you can't do this, okay? You can't, uh, you know, oh, that's, uh, that's, you dragged your chair across the ground. That's tilling the ground right there. You know, that's, you can't do that. You can't do that. They had all of these laws and, and commandments that they added. They took something meant to be a day of rest, and they laid all sorts of heavy burdens upon the people. Contrary to the practice of these lawyers, Jesus invited people, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Okay? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You see, Jesus was the exact opposite of these lawyers. Where they bound heavy burdens... Jesus' burden was light. Where their burdens were hard to bear, Jesus' yoke was easy. 
As they laid them on men's shoulders, Jesus invites us to place things on his shoulders as he invites us to yoke with him. Where they would not lift a single finger to help, Jesus offers to yoke with us and teach us with gentleness and with a humble heart. Jesus would never ask us to do something that he himself would not be willing to do as well. Everything he asks of us, he also offers to partner with us and to help us complete. May we follow in the example that Jesus left for us. May we be those who come alongside our brothers and sisters and do our best to lighten their loads, to help bear their burdens. You see, Paul teaches us in the book of Galatians in chapter 6, verse 2, that by coming alongside one another and bearing one another's burdens, we fulfill the law of Christ. And the law of Christ is rooted in love. It's loving God and loving others. We show our love for the Lord and our love for one another by coming alongside one another and helping in times of need and bearing one another's burdens. Continuing on, let's take a look at verses 47 through 51 as we note the second woe Jesus had for the scribes. Verse 47, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. This woe Jesus shared against the lawyers had to do with their and their father's treatment of God's prophets. The lawyers of the day tried to actually distance themselves from the acts of their fathers by building elaborate monuments and tombs in honor of the prophets of old who had died at the hands of the previous generation's religious elite. But Jesus calls them out, saying that their own words and actions testify against them. In the book of Matthew, we find out that it was a common saying amongst the religious leaders to claim that if they had lived in the days of their fathers, they would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. They say, oh, I would have never done that, right? You know, we love God's people. We love the prophets, right? We would have never been like our fathers. But Jesus shows their own words are going to come against them. Jesus prophesies of speaking of how the wisdom of God says, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute. And as we first read that, it might seem like Jesus is perhaps quoting something from the Old Testament here, perhaps maybe from one of the books of wisdom. But I do not believe such is the case, because you will not find this quote in the Old Testament. So where does the wisdom of God speak this? Well, I believe it could be right then and there. Because 1 Corinthians describes Jesus as both the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so when Jesus says the wisdom of God says, he's basically making the statement, I say, Jesus knew how he and his apostles would be treated by these lawyers, these scribes, these religious leaders. Jesus knew that this generation of lawyers would be part of the group of people that would kill and persecute the prophets of their day, the ones sent by the Lord, John the Baptist, Jesus Christ. Many of the apostles would be persecuted. They would be martyred for the faith. And in doing so, these lawyers are going to be lumped together with all the previous generations that were responsible for the shed blood of innocent servants of the Lord. From the very first innocent blood that was shed in the life of Abel, all the way to the blood of Zechariah, who was perished between the altar and the temple, this generation was going to be held just as responsible as the previous ones for their actions against the Lord's anointed. You know, as I read this particular woe, I was trying to think, what's the application for us? You know, how do we... What do we pull from this? Okay, I understand what it's saying. Uh, but what can we learn from this particular woe? And this is where I landed. I think this woe teaches us to be careful where we stand, lest we fall. Paul states in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, Let him who thinks he stands take heed 
lest he fall. May we not be ones who put much confidence in our own flesh. Hey, we need to be careful not to think that we are beyond certain sins or certain struggles, especially the sins and struggles of others who we may turn our nose towards and we think, I can't believe they struggle in that area and you think that you'll never fall. You guys better be careful, okay? We are all capable of falling at any time, okay? Our hearts are deceitful above all things, and they are desperately wicked, according to Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. Do not put your trust in yourself or in your own heart or in your own religious works, thinking that you are better than someone else or that you are above certain things. Listen, trust and rely upon the Lord to lead you and to guide you and to keep you from sin. Do not trust in yourself. We're running out of time here. Okay, let's continue on looking at this final woe against the group of lawyers. Verse 52. It says, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in, you hindered. The final woe may have been the worst of them all. For in it we see that these lawyers were guilty of keeping people from actually coming to the Lord. As experts in the law of Moses, these scribes were seen as the keepers of God's word. They were entrusted with the responsibility of properly instructing people in the word of God. They were seen as the God-ordained authorities of the word of God. In a sense, they served as mediators between God and God's people, like the priests of the Old Testament, of which Malachi wrote, the lips of the priest should keep knowledge, and people should seek the law from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. You see, they held the key of knowledge. They held the word of God. Well, what did they do with it? They took it away from the people. Mark 7, verse 13, describes how the religious leaders of the day, they made the word of God of no effect through their traditions which they handed down. Through their many man-made traditions, based upon their own interpretations of the law, they had taken away the key of knowledge, the word of God, and they had replaced it with a man-made system of rules and regulations and traditions and rituals. Because they emphasized their own individual interpretations over the word of God, Jesus accurately declared they neither enter in themselves nor allow others to enter in, though they try. Their traditions, rules, and regulations were like roadblocks and detours that led people away from the kingdom of heaven rather than leading them into the kingdom of heaven. And from this woe, we learn and understand that our words and our actions have the potential to derail some from coming to the Lord and entering into a right relationship with the Lord. You see, our words and deeds can either push people away from God and His kingdom or They can encourage people to come to the Lord and enter into his kingdom. You see, people will either be drawn to the Lord or they will be pushed away from the Lord based upon our representation of the Lord. We are his ambassadors. And as people look at us and they see our lives, they're going to make an assessment. I want more of that or I don't want anything to do with that. My hope, my prayer is that we would be the kind of people that live our lives in such a way that we would draw people towards the Lord. That people would see our lives and they would want what we have in the Lord. That God would use us as conduits for bringing people to Him. Let's look at these final verses. We'll wrap this all up. Okay, Verse 53 and 54, real fast. And as he said these things to them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him, seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. Here we see the reaction of the scribes and the Pharisees to these strong accusations. Instead of repenting and turning from their misery, they turned upon Jesus. They start cross-examining him with all sorts of questions and attempt to get him to say something that would be self-incriminating. The religious leaders responded the way many do when they are faced with correction and the truth of God. Instead of humbly receiving the correction, they responded with outraged accusations. Listen, Proverbs tells us much about 
those who refuse to receive correction and how they will respond. It should come as no shock to us. First of all, they will respond in hate toward those who correct them. Proverbs 9, 8 says, Do not correct a scoffer lest he hate you. Second, they will not listen to the one who corrects them. A scoffer does not listen to rebuke, Proverbs 13 tells us. Third, they will end up despising their own soul. He who disdains instruction despises his own soul. They end up miserable people who will not receive and listen to correction. And Proverbs also tells us much about the character of those who refuse to receive correction. Proverbs 12.1 puts it bluntly and teaches us that he who hates correction is stupid. Okay? Now, I know some of our kids aren't supposed to say that word, you know, but they're over there. Okay? Um, we won't tell them we said that. Okay? But it's pretty clear. Okay? Proverbs 15.5 speaks of such as playing the part of the fool. A fool despises his father's instruction. Okay, if we want to avoid being stupid which I hope we do. Okay, and we want to avoid playing the part of the fool. We need to be those who are willing to receive correction and to learn from it, you guys. Okay, as we consider the accusations and the practices of the religious elite and Jesus' woes against them, may we search our own hearts. May we make sure we allow the Lord to work on any of these areas that we may be struggling with ourselves. Because we don't want to play the part of the Pharisee. We don't want to play the part of the lawyers. May we be open to all that the Lord is wanting to teach us and show us. May we be yielded to the work He desires to do in us and through us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And Lord, even as we look at a portion of Scripture where You had a lot of harsh, maybe harsh things to say, truthful things, um, Lord, we don't want to just skip over this and be like, well, we don't want to talk about this. Lord, we want to search our own hearts. We want to know, Lord, uh, is there any element of us that's acting the part of the Pharisee? Is there any part of us that's acting the part of the lawyer? Lord, I pray that you would reveal that if so. Lord, that we would uh, repent, that we would be willing to receive correction if need be. Lord, we do uh, thank you for portions of Scripture like this that just remind us of the importance of taking inventory from time to time of just doing a self-check and making an assessment of where we are with you lord lord i do ask that you would lead us and guide us father we do thank you for your son jesus christ who welcomes us to come to him and invites us to yoke with him lord and if we are carrying, you know, perhaps heavy burdens or we find ourselves just struggling with these things, we can come to the Lord. We can come to you, God, and you're going to be there for us. You're going to help us. Lord, and not only have you given us the Lord, most importantly, Lord, but you've even given us one another. Lord, I hope and pray that we would be brothers and sisters that are willing to come alongside one another and bear one another's burdens and help each other out. And, and Lord, in doing so, we would fulfill the law of Christ. We would love as you love. And so, Lord, lead us, guide us, search our hearts, we pray. May we be open to all that your spirit desires to do. We ask and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.